Okay, I'm sure we can all agree that the Queen was a great example of character to us. That she was a dutiful Queen. That she was a servant. Here's what she was asked, or what she asked the country to pray when she was crowned in 1952. Pray for me, that God may give me the wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promises I shall be making, and that I may faithfully serve him and you all the days of my life. She never seemed to move away from that conviction, despite living through some of the greatest changes of all time. I mean, she was born before the invention of colour TV, and when a state visit would have taken 10 weeks to just get there if she was going to Australia. Now you can get there in a day and you can keep up to date with people in real time with a device at the end of your arm. Once you took the throne, people trusted institutions. From the monarchy and government to their local schools, doctors, churches. Now people splice Google searches together and come up with their own heart's desires and ideas. She has watched as the nation has turned from prayerfulness in schools and national services to secular and agnostic political correctness. And yet, she has remained steady, constant. And in, in fact, in almost every tribute I've read, and I'm sure that you're the same, this week she was described as a steady presence through it all. Even 45 years ago, the Queen was recognised this way. The poet Philip Larkin wrote this for her Silver Jubilee. In times when nothing stood but worsened or grew strange, there was one constant good. She did not change. Things worsened, things got strange, you can say that for sure. She remained steady. She lived a life of integrity, but how did she do it? How is it that people can live a life that is true to what they have set out to do, that has integrity? Two things, I think. One, she stood on the firmest of ground, on what she called the bedrock of her life, the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. Second thing, she set her gaze to her true home. Here's what she said at the gathering of the Commonwealth Secretariat in 2011. We are just passing through. Our purpose here is to observe, to learn, to grow, to love. And then we return home. She knew that even Buckingham Palace... Even Balmoral was just a temporary dwelling and her crown a cheap substitute for her forever home and crown of life waiting for her in heaven with Jesus. So there you have it. She could remain steady and clear and full of unwavering conviction because she stood on the bedrock of Jesus' teachings and set her gaze beyond this existence to her true home with him in heaven. The name of our series in Peter's second letter to the out of place is Looking for Home. 
Perhaps you've been looking for home and you've just never truly quite found it. Some things seem like they might be, but they never really satisfy. You never really feel like you're truly yourself. Well, that's because all of these other things are our temporary dwellings. We need to set our eyes, our gaze on our heavenly dwelling. So we're going to open up today in chapter uh, 1 of 2 Peter. It's near the end of your Bibles and uh, not far away from that last book, Revelation. If, you've, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, um, do turn to it, 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 12. It says this, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth, you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son in whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Our five-year-old really doesn't appreciate it when I tell her something that she already knows. I know, Daddy! Okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Maybe some of you feel like that. When we get up here and we say things to you that you already know, I already know this. Maybe just switch off, think, oh my goodness, here he goes again. But Peter reminds us here that one of the keys to a godly life for out-of-place Christians is gospel repetition. To be reminded of who Jesus is to you again and again and again. The scattering of churches that Peter writes to is a tiny minority where they are. And they're wondering, how is it that I could possibly live a faithful life to God when I'm so outnumbered? When everything around me is saying something different? How am I supposed to do that? And Peter's answer is not a 10-step strategy towards a godly life. It is simple. He reminds them of who they are now because of Jesus. Some people want new knowledge from the preacher every week to satisfy their intellectual appetite. Some would like it all a bit more entertaining, funny even. All the best with that. You might even consider leaving for another church if we're a bit Liz Truss and not enough Barack Obama. 
You want good communicators. You want entertained. You want intellectual stimulation. We're going to give you Jesus. Imagine the scene. Johnny Rennie. Good lad. He's been preaching. And you have gone to lunch with some people afterwards on that Sunday. And uh, you get around the dinner table, you're having a good old chat, and someone says, what do you think of this sermon today? How did Johnny get on? Now, there are two ways that you can answer this question. One is to give Johnny a good old assessment. Well, I find him a bit boring here, but wasn't that exciting when he was talking about that thing? Was, that was hilarious. Remember he said that thing and, oh, wasn't that good? I'd say he's like 5 out of 10, 6 out of 10, something like that. I'd give you a 10, mate, but you know. Um, or you could say, you could, your conversation could be around how God has spoken to you through his preaching. How has God changed me? What am I going to do in response to the word preached? That's a totally different way of assessing the preach that morning. The first, that says there's something in our hearts that is way off. The second, that's really encouraging. If that's the way you think about preaching, then maybe, just maybe, you're listening for the voice of God. Often when we ask those kind of questions, people are still not living out what was preached the week before. What Lewis taught last month. Dennis or Jonathan taught in the summer. What I've been preaching for the last few years. We need gospel reputa- reputation. Repetition. Repetition as well. Gospel repetition dug deep down into our hearts in such a way that it actually changes us. The great reformer Martin Luther said this in his commentary to the Galatians, that it is most necessary to know this article well. He's talking about the gospel. Teach it unto others and beat it into their heads continually. Maybe not the language I would use, but it gets the point across. We don't need new intellectual stimulation or entertaining stories. We need to continually hear about the Jesus who transforms us into his likeness. Look at verses 13 and 14. Peter is so concerned that this message is constantly repeated that he wants to make sure that it's down in black and white before he dies. A threat that was very real and in fact we know probably happened pretty soon after this when he was martyred upside down on a cross was coming. And he wanted to make sure that these people he loved scattered across what is now modern-day Turkey had heard the most important things that he has to say to them. And what was the most important things that he had to say to them? It wasn't some newfangled, amazing intellectual insight. It was Jesus. I just want you to know Jesus. I want you to know about his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his pouring out of his spirit, that he's coming back soon in glory. These churches are in a tough spot. And in Peter's first letter to them, he described them as aliens and strangers in a foreign land. They are like refugees in a place 
that is increasingly difficult to call home. That's why Peter calls his temporary body here in this world a tent, verse 13. He is actually comparing an ancient journey across the desert when God's people were released from slavery in Egypt and were looking for the, to, be, to enter into the promised land. He reminds them of that story because just like that wilderness story, that is what it is like to be a Christian in this world. You have been set free from slavery to sin, death, Satan. But you are not yet home. You're in the tent of your body. Just like Moses' generation all those years ago when God rescued them, we find ourselves waiting. Now God mercifully rescued them. He said to them, take the blood of a young lamb and smear it on your doorposts and the angel of death will pass over you and then you will be taken out of Egypt and he, he causes the waters to part when Moses leads them out and they go through the Red Sea and they are saved and out they come onto the other side, free and yet not home, not established in brick houses but living in campsites. Tents, refugees, and waiting. But God was with them. How do I know he was with them? Because of what Peter is getting to here. In the heart of their camp was a dwelling place for God. A tabernacle, a tent, where God was with them. And at the heart of that presence, what do we remember was there? The Ark of the Covenant. What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? The tablets that God had given Moses on Sinai, the words of God, word and spirit at the heart of the camp. Peter reminds these out-of-place Christians pining for their true home that as we wait for Jesus to take us there, we have a better tabernacle, one where God lives, not in a building, not in a tent, but in you. You are now the tents. The presence of God dwelling in you. You believe in Jesus, you're following his ways. The power and presence of the Spirit of God dwells in you. And in doing so, the word of God has been planted in your heart. This word of God about the gospel. And it is growing, it is going deep down into you and it is growing these words have been planted in our hearts and Peter wants these guys to know and he wants you and God wants you to know now that those words are sure words that can be relied on a trustworthy message repeatedly spoken over and over again and affirmed by the Holy Spirit we do not want to entertain we want the good news of Jesus repeated to us again and again Lindsay and I dated for five years long distance, Nottingham to Glasgow. Sometimes not seeing each other for weeks. And I'm sure some of you can identify with that kind of frustration, especially when loved ones were separated from us who maybe lived far away or uh, were in care homes during the pandemic. It's 
infuriating at times. Zoom and phone calls, well, they just don't cut it, do they? I'm so glad that we're beyond that now. And hopefully it doesn't return. But here's something weird that I did. When we were long distance, when we were getting back together, when we were meeting up again, I would kind of picture when we would meet up again, whether they were coming off a train or I was driving down, uh, getting out of the car, coming into the house, I would imagine what I'm going to say and do when I see Lindsay again. I'm kind of rehearsing it in my mind, right? Lindsay used to think this was so weird. She kind of knew I'd be doing it and she'd like kind of laugh at me. That was kind of weird. But can I encourage you that we should be people who are rehearsing our reunion, rehearsing our homecoming, thinking and dreaming of that moment when we come face to face with Jesus. We should be fixing our gaze on that moment when we will at last be all we are made to be in the presence of God, delighted by him, glorifying him for the rest of our days, being everything that God's called us to. The day is coming when Jesus will return for you. And he's going to return in all his glory. And Peter's encouraging us, keep holding on. Keep trusting. Keep looking to that day when you're face to face with him. But his spirit is with you now. And I know, Peter says, he will appear to you in glory because I have seen his glory. I am an eyewitness of it. I've seen the glory of Christ in my own eyes. I don't know about you, but I love a real-life crime podcast. My like, personal favourite is Serial. You seen that? Uh, heard that? Absolutely brilliant. But don't get into it, okay? Because it's super addictive. Um, the Staircase. Have you seen that one? Heard that one. You won't have seen it. Uh, I'm still trying to work out whether Michael Pearson really did it or not. I'm not sure. Anyway, they're so addictive. But one of the things that I've learned from them is this. That eyewitness accounts are super important. Eyewitness accounts are the deal breakers. Especially when there is multiple eyewitness accounts and they collaborate. If you can get that, then your case is sorted. Peter, along with the other apostles, are saying here in verse 16, we did not follow clearly, uh, cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's taking us back to this moment where they glimpsed the glory of Jesus at his baptism. Do you remember reading about that? Jesus asked John the Baptist if he would baptize him in the River Jordan. John is like, no, I'm not worthy of that. But Jesus persuades him to do it anyway. And when he does, something really quite different happens at his baptism than happened at all the other ones. The sky parts, a dove descends, and the voice of God declares this, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. When God says that, 
to Jesus in that moment in the Jordan. He is reminding everyone present of two messianic passages in the Bible. And those two different prophetic threads that we can follow through the whole Old Testament are revealing that Jesus truly is his son. That Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Saviour. The first quote, Psalm 2, the beloved son, which he says is the true king from David's line. The second part, in whom I am well pleased, is a reference to Isaiah 53, where God tells the prophet the Messiah will come as a suffering servant and he will be the pleasure of the Lord, the one who pleases him. So here you have it. God the Father himself is revealing the glory of Christ at his baptism and confirms that Jesus is the Davidic king come to both, uh, both as the king ruling and reigning and to be the suffering servant who can take away the sin of the world. He's our sacrificial lamb, the one who rescues He's the servant king the prophets of old had promised would come. And don't just take Peter's word for it. Don't just take Jesus' word for it. Take God the Father's word for it because he parted the skies to declare it. Jesus is the Messiah. And then Peter mentions another event. Verse 18, the sacred mountain. And that was a moment where he witnessed Jesus literally lighting up in glory. It's called the transfiguration on this mountain. And he sees the glory of Christ right there in front of his eyes. He's joined by Moses and Elijah. And now with these two people who sum up in many ways the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. They're like representatives of the law and the prophets. Here are bodily representatives of that. So you've got Moses the lawgiver and Elijah as Israel's greatest prophet. And so what's happening here? Not only are we seeing that Jesus is the glory of God, we're also seeing that the word of God is affirming this. The star witness here is the word of God. You see how both of Peter's experience of the glory of God were fulfillments of scripture? And that is what he's driving at. Jesus is the one we can truly rely on. He is the unbreakable word of God. Peter's saying, look, I'm telling you, I've seen his glory. I know he really is the Messiah of the scriptures. And he's come in the flesh. But don't think that because Jesus came into the nitty gritty of life, don't think that because he came into our real existence, our real life experience, that somehow that could mean that his glory couldn't come. Don't, don't think that that is somehow making it lesser than some transcendent experience that you and your culture are expecting to see 
Because even coming in the flesh, he reveals that he is the glory of God. In other words, heaven's glory has come through Christ. You don't need that great transcendent experience where you kind of float up into the clouds because Jesus has come near, heaven has come near, the kingdom of God has come here into your experience. Everything changes when we realize that all of God's promises find their yes and their amen in Jesus. Jesus has always been the main character of the Bible. Always. And when we see that, everything changes. The lights shine into our fuel poverty. The light shines into uncertainty, into parenting while holding down a demanding job, into a cancer diagnosis, into a relationship breakdown. I urge you to be reminded of this simple truth. God's word is more reliable than any other message. And it points to a saviour who has come to rescue you and take you home to glory and his name is Jesus. Some of that might all sound complicated to you. It's pulling different threads of the Bible altogether. But ultimately that's what it's saying. Jesus is the saviour of the world. He has come in his glory and you can rely on him to return and take you home. The great author C.S. Lewis said it this way, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Do you notice that in verse 19? God doesn't require our circumstances to be bright. He doesn't require our circumstances to be good before he shines into a dark place. In fact, if you're in a dark place right now, you're a prime for the light to shine into your darkness. It doesn't rely on you, it relies on Jesus who has come, his light has broken in, and you just need to ask. Feeling gloomy? Turn to God's word and receive the gospel of light and be filled with his presence as a tent who is awaiting your true heavenly home. If we want to follow the example the Queen has left us, living a life that stands on solid ground and remains constant and focused throughout, keep the gospel on repeat. Keep telling yourself, preaching to yourself the gospel. And keep planning your reunion with Jesus. Keep planning that moment of homecoming. Keep your gaze fixed on him.